My name is Victoria Segundo. I came to Collinwood two years ago, changed my name, and began speaking in a gratuitous falsetto voice. Because that's what you do when you live in a mysterious mansion populated by ghosts, vampires, werewolves, and other odd creatures that the writers recycled to keep a 1960s daytime soap opera running. I should point out that Barnabas has been biting me for quite some time. It's really a silly place to be, in large part because Sarah Waters has written a narrative that's far less cheesier than my lifestyle. Okay, so I am here once again with the delightful Sarah Waters, who is most recently the author of The Little Stranger. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, first off, I noticed that in the acknowledgments, uh, you read many books pertaining to poltergeists and country doctors. Uh, but this novel is not just about that. You've got uh, the dismantling of this estate being occupied by houses. You have, of course, uh, the class system becoming more egalitarian, the onset of public medicine. And this leads me to wonder exactly how much research you did for these other topics and why, whether there might in fact be an advantage or disadvantage or uh, trade-offs towards the amount of research you devote from one topic or another. Or what, were there lingering files from the, uh, the Night Watch or what happened here? Well, yeah, of course, I'd done a whole lot of research into the 1940s for the Night Watch. And it wasn't so much, you know, that I had stuff left over that I, that I, I thought I should use. It was that I had still an interest in the period. I told with the Night Watch a very particular story, basically mainly a wartime story. I, I looked at the post-war period too. But, you, you know, you can't read anything from the period in terms of middle-class novels and diaries without coming across class. You know, yeah. it was a time of turmoil, really. I, I mean, it, it's an exciting time for working-class people because they suddenly, they had the health service coming and they, had a, they voted in a Labour government. Um, you know, they had higher expectations after the war. But for the upper-middle classes, sort of landowning classes, it was a disaster. They suddenly couldn't get servants to maintain their, their houses and their lifestyles anymore. They'd lost money in the 30s. Um, farming income was down. So it was, it was a time of crisis and that was my starting point really for the little stranger and it was only when I it was only in trying to find a way trying to find a form to do justice to the to those feelings that were around in the 40s that I hit on the idea of doing it as a haunted house novel and suddenly yeah. it felt absolutely perfect very very close to the woman in black I should point out you've uh -huh. got of course a small town you've got uh, the ghost of a little girl uh, I, I was reading this going Hmm, how much was this kind of ripped off? But this actually leads me to wonder uh, a question I asked Richard Flanagan in relation to his use of Heinrich Boll in The Unknown Terrorist. I mean, are we overstating how many elements we lift, supposedly, from another book? Or is it really just a matter of something along the lines of this class system uh, concern that really kind of dictates how a novel becomes original? Yeah, you know, I was very aware of the ghost story genre, and certainly The Woman in Black is, is an excellent example of the genre, and, a, you know, a book I much admire. Um, and, so, and if you're telling a haunted house story, there are a limited range of elements, I think. Um, so for me, I was, you know, I was mindful of a whole range of, of texts, things like Turn of the Screw, um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, another wonderful novel. Films, too, you know, 
The Innocence, um, which is based on Turning the Screw, um, The Others, which is, you know, reminiscent of The Innocence. So it is a sort of small but very vi- vibrant genre, I think. And I was very happy to let The Little Stranger be a part of that genre, you know, be very obviously a part of that genre. I mean, if anything, I was influenced by the ghost stories of a writer like M.R. James, yeah. you know, from the turn, beginning of the 20th century in Britain, who wrote a lot of the, of the real classic ghost stories. And he often has these these bachelor gentleman narrators, scholars and people like that, doctors. And so my Dr. Faraday, the narrator of The Little Stranger, was, for me, very reminiscent of that tradition, you know, very deliberately in that tradition. But this also raises the question, because I noticed that, for example, some of the four-letter words are actually dashed out. So, and, and as well as the, uh, the concern for male consciousness of Faraday throughout this book about how he's constantly uh, describing how his life is so terrible as, as, a, as a doctor, when in fact he has a considerable privilege here. Uh, I'm curious as to how much, say, you know, M.R. James or any novel of this type dictates the style and dictates uh, how you go about uh, drawing upon this greater canvas of class relations of country doctors and, of course, poltergeists. Yeah, sure. Well, I've always, you know, I've always written historical novels and I've always been very um, happy to let... To, to try and capture the idiom of the time, especially, obviously, when I'm using a first-person narrator, as I am in this book. So for me, it was kind of important to have the doctor's voice feel of its time. And he's quite a, he's quite a prissy kind of guy. He's, he's, he has an, an interesting class position of his own because he's, he's a working-class boy who's done well. You know, he's, got, he's been put through medical college on scholarships and grants, but he's never really achieved as far as he's concerned the, the, the sort of role of gentleman and actually being a doctor at that time especially in a rural practice it was it was it wasn't as you weren't as automatically middle class as you are today and it was you were you were a businessman you know before the nhs you were running a business and it was hard work and if you didn't have private patients who would pay you well it was you, you struggled and he's a struggling country doctor struggling in all sorts of ways he develops a relationship with the the family at the hall the heirs is but it's a complicated relationship because of his own class background and his lingering resentments about that but there's also this situation in which he constantly tosses off work to other doctors in the area including Seeley and a number of other people and one almost gets the sense of this privilege or this entitlement that he essentially wants to go to Hundreds Hill and lounge about all day. It's a very curious position that he's in because on one hand, here you have this rising egalitarianism, this rising middle class uh, situation that's ha- happening in the distance. You constantly have the, you know, you, I think you even write in the book that there are the train tracks rolling in of public medicine, I, which, I, which is absolutely right. But simultaneously, he wants to go ahead and fit himself into this old school system. Oh, definitely. And, and I, and I'm yeah. Yeah. as to why that how that emphasis came well it was the complications in his in his past and his relationship with 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 his class you know that that produced that for me that I, I didn't want him to be a pure a pure critic of the family um he's he despite himself he kind of grows to like them but it, What's beyond that, really, is as a sense of acquisitiveness. You know, he's visited the hall as a little boy. His mother was a servant there. And he's sort of fall, fallen under the spell of Hundreds Hall as a child and revisiting it as an adult to treat a patient there. Um, you know, he's kind of seduced by the house, even though it's clear to us that the house is, is falling apart. The yeah. family can't maintain it any longer. The family themselves, a mother and a grown-up son and daughter, 
are struggling to maintain it, are being kind of having the life sucked out of them, really, you know, to maintain it. But for him, his way into the house is a way into a class position, that the security of a class position that he kind of longs for. So he has this very complicated relationship with the house and the family. You know, he sort of wants it, even as he kind of wants to destroy it. Yeah. But is it the house or is it Warwickshire? Because he has this opportunity to serve on committees mm. in London uh, during the course of the book. And at the same time, you do have Seeley, who is a rather scummy guy at the dance, but simultaneously he's his own man and he has built up his practice through this hard, you know, we see his family later on and it's just, he's completely, he's just a complete dick, basically. And uh, so uh, he has these opportunities, even in his town, to establish himself, and yet he chooses not to do this. He chooses to go by the old, dilapidated, rotting, uh, decrepit, falling apart kind of class system. And, and that's, I guess, the curious question is, is, is why, why, given these opportunities, he would go towards, towards Hundreds Hall? Well, he's, he's being sucked into the, into the hall, you know, into the life of the hall at that point. It's, it's a story that very much takes place, you know, within, within the hall itself and, it, and its kind of pull it has over people. And it's sort of pulling him. You know, the, the hall became, for me, almost a character in the book in its own right. It's almost like an animate house. And it's got this kind of pink hallway, which is like a throat, you know, sort of swallowing people up. And for me, he was... Not unresistingly, you know, being being drawn into the life of the house to the exclusion of other, other possibilities in, in his life. So it's a sort of closing down for him, which he interprets as a sort of opening up, I suppose, yeah. opening up of prestige. Well, to talk about the description, I should note that most of the descriptions of the house are very noun-heavy. And, in fact, I would argue possibly more noun-heavy than a lot of your other novels. And I'm wondering if this was an effort on your part where you... you know, like, for example, here's one, uh, the thing that had started with Jip perhaps as a nip or a whisper. So he's constantly, uh, in his in conveying this narrative, he's constantly latching onto nouns, these concrete sorts of uh, units of language, I notice. And oh, I'm wondering if that was conscious on your part. No, I don't think it was. I mean, he is, of course, a man of science. And yeah. it's one of the tensions of the book that he's narrating this story to us. He never himself witnesses anything supernatural. He has it reported to him by the family who grow increasingly kind of hysterical in response to these very odd things that start happening in the house. Um, he's continually trying to find a rational way to explain those, whether it's nervous breakdown or, you know, hysteria or, or even incipient kind of full-blown madness. Um, so, yes, for me, it was interesting, actually, trying to find a way for people to talk about the stuff in the house. Because, I mean, you've called it a ghost, the ghost of the little girl. And actually, I never really saw it as a ghost. I don't think it's a, it's a ghost. It's something strange. You know, I did read a lot about poltergeists. And for me, poltergeists are something quite separate from ghosts you know there's sort of collection of energies or conflicts or something bad energy for me that was much more what's going on in the house I suppose the question is who's kind of behind it really um so there's a continual striving in the novel to find ways of of, of talking about this thing and but I guess yes you're right that Dr Friday will always want to use familiar familiar words to, as a sort of safety mechanism I suppose for dealing yeah. with it. But in this question of him being a man of science versus the faith he must place in these stories I mean he never actually observes any of the poltergeists not specifically he hears these anecdotes from the heirses uh, and he never actually observes them and so you have this interesting balance between faith and science but I'm wondering if it's not so much the poltergeists as it is his ability to 
have a proper bedside manner or his ability to actually just listen to other people or even you know be there for other people he, he just willfully blinds himself to his place and his view of himself is a balding grocer in the mirror for God's sake and that's another aspect I'm, I'm sorry to throw so many things mm-hmm. at you but I have to note that you never actually specifically say what his age is oh is it and, and, ah, and don't I I thought I did early on early on he's about to turn 40 he's about it? to turn 40 but but you actually he's very coy about this particular age and he's constantly saying oh I can't go up in there because I'm just too old it's like nonsense you're 40 years old you could still go to the well <laughs> today you can go to the gym you know? today you can go to the gym of course in the 1940s I think yeah. being 40 was being middle I mean being thoroughly middle-aged yeah. people were older in their style and maybe even physically you know kind of older so I was very mindful that he is he's of a different generation to Caroline really you know yeah. the daughter he, he develops a bit of a romance with Caroline but he's definitely He's definitely, you know, on the way into old age. I think that's part of his problem, that he feels that he's he's been this boy, this young boy of enormous promise, a working-class boy, you know, really clever. People have picked him out, singled him out for attention. He's had these advantages, but all they've done really is to alienate him from his own class. And he's never really lived up to that promise. And here he is at 40, about to, you know, enter into the sort of second half of his life, not having achieved very much, which is why I think his exposure to the hall has, is so crucial for him, yeah. because it does open up something for him. But but Celia is older than him and he doesn't yeah. concern himself with his age. Well, and so I'm not different. sure. If, yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, it's true. it's not like I for me I was very interested with the doctor's individual take on things. Yeah. And he is he is a man who's slightly apart from his colleagues. You know, he has these quite pleasant colleagues, but they are family men. He's not. He's a bachelor. He's quite yeah. a lonely figure, really. Um, which again is why he, f- you know, he fastens on to the hall, um, which actually I think was a, you know, was a problem for bachelor doctors that people would often leave the family doctor alone because they knew he had his own his own children, his own wife to, you know, take care of, and they'd they'd go to the bachelor doctor. And I think a problem for doctors was precisely that they they were at risk of giving too much to their patients, and they had a guard against that. And I think, you know. To a certain extent, that's what happens to Dr. Faraday. He gets sucked into this extraordinary hall with these odd things going on in it. Well, to talk about this bachelorhood, I don't think we could talk about it without bringing up the interesting patriarchal angle of your book. In the beginning, you have it largely as the symbol with Jip the dog, the first 100 pages. And then in the last 100 pages, there's this almost 11th hour turn into, well, this is a serious... uh, a serious uh, scenario involving patriarchy. So you take something that starts off at the very beginning as being very metaphorical and allegorical and one can sort of see where it's going and then it goes into this other story of this romance that we're talking about. And then at the end, and I don't want to really give it away, it becomes very explicit about what this guy is doing. And I'm curious as to how that that this kind of patriarchal concern came about or, or is this just something that just came about intuitively? Yeah, I think it was kind of intuitive in a sense. You know, he was very much, he is a man of his time and and men of the time had an enormous sense of entitlement, I think, Um, which kind of trumps class. I mean, for me, there was this interesting tension between, you know, class-wise, he's sort of on a lower level than the heirs is. But gender-wise, you know, he's he's got this prerogative to sort of make a move on Caroline and he's, he's kind of aware of that tension, I think. So on the one hand, she is a plain woman. He sees her as being slightly beneath him. She's like a notoriously plain girl in the neighborhood. Um, you know, and he, and he we wouldn't really. He's, he's shocked to think that other people might think that there's a kind of a romance between them. But to, to consider her as a, as an ob- 
object of status. You know, he, she, he, she's terribly desirable to him. So there's this conflict in his in his feelings towards her. She, of course, has her own conflicts in her feelings towards him, um, which I which I really enjoyed. But yes, of course, as the novel progresses, I think his male possessiveness, acquisitiveness, or whatever. Um, you know, emerges more and more. But that was interesting for me because I wanted him to start off as apparently, you know, in, in very much in the tradition of the bland, genial M.R. James narrator, but then to become slightly more sinister as the novel progresses to the point where you're not quite sure what his role in things really is. And yet, if you had not imbued him with some sort of empathy, he would have been a complete creep, I would, I think. And yeah. so I'm, I, it's almost as if you're resisting the fact that he, he was gradually getting into creep as you're reading and perhaps as you're writing. And I'm curious, did, did you know that he was a creep at the very beginning or did you find this out in the course of writing? <laughs> well, you know, I, would I call him a creep? I don't know I would call him creep. I mean, he's a complicated guy. Yeah. Um, and he definitely has, there's something, there's something, he has a sinister edge, you know, as things develop. Um, but I liked him too. I liked him, and I could I could sympathise with his predicaments. And he is ultimately, I think, a lonely figure. He's a rather poignant, lonely figure. Mm-hmm. Well, I also wanted to uh, ask you about just the names Faraday and Ayres. I mean, these are first of all, Faraday is hardly magnetic, and Ayres, well, these Ayres apparent aren't exactly Ayres. Uh, these are very uh, explicit character names, perhaps more so than even uh, your previous uh, uh, books. So, what happened here? But you know, I didn't plan it like that at all. I liked, <laughs> I liked the name Ayres. I don't know, it just felt right. Um, and Faraday, you see Faraday, I named him Faraday when I planned for him to be a rather middle-class character, and Faraday seemed to fit that. And by the time I decided he was, uh, you know, he had a more complicated working-class background, Faraday didn't feel quite right, but by then I was so attached to it as his name, I, I decided to keep it anyway. And then I had him using um, electrical therapy on, on Roderick, which I discovered, to my annoyance, was, was, of course, called Faradism as a technique. And I thought, oh, no, people are going to think there's some, something going on here, some symbolism. But in fact, again, I was, I, you know, I was just attached to the name, so I decided to keep it. So actually, uh, you know, in contrast with, say, my, some of my Victorian novels, I, th- I wasn't intending any kind of symbolism with the names. But with Jip, he seems to me a very explicit symbol, particularly of at the what? beginning. A symbol of this old world attitude because you have his hooves clomping in the house. And, and, and I was very aware of this early on reading Jip. I'm saying, mm, you know, something's probably going to happen. And, and as it turns out, something does happen. Mm. Uh, but here is this old mangy dog who everybody likes, who is friendly, who does something when provoked. And it's almost because this is on the eve of this tremendous change in England, it seems to me at least, fairly symbolic. And I and you, you didn't plan Jip as a, as a symbol of any kind? Or? No, not exactly. But of course, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to write about the country gentry in Britain without talking about dogs because, of yeah. course, they love their dogs. And, and it is, you're right that the dog is a kind of symbol of their sort of class entitlement. You know, they go striding off across the countryside with these great big dogs that occasionally sort of kill, you know, sort of bite small children and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah, so you're absolutely right. But I was very fond of Jip, actually. I mean, I kind of based him on a on a friend's dog. Um, I was very aware, very aware of him physically and this kind of sound of his paws, as you say, on on the marble. So, yeah, he just he was for me. He's like the weakest point of the family props. Yeah. That's why his the, what happens to him is the start of the family's decline. But in light of what happens to Jip, and I, again, I don't want to give it away, this would seem to me, uh, again, we are at this point of no return. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are at this point where things are changing. And so I, the question is, is 
when a friend's dog who you're fond of becomes something a little bit more minatory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, Jip, he's this black Labrador and in, in the gloomy house, I like the idea of him sort of passing in and out of the shadows. There's definitely the sense of there's something in the shadows of the house, you know. So he does have this extra life to him. But um, yeah, I, he's kind of a poignant, again, a, a rather poignant figure. You know, each of the characters individually, I, I found rather poignant. But collectively, they, they formed this story that's, you know, takes place because, as you say, there are these sort of... It's, it's history in process. It's sort of brutal changes happening, and there are always some casualties with things like that. Do you require every character you write about to have this level of poignancy, or the, you, do you need to empathize with uh -huh. every single character in order for this to work? I think so. I think it's hard not to develop those kinds of feelings about your characters if you're really doing them justice you know I, I I get very impatient with novels where I feel like they've just sort of used minor characters and thrown them away you know um, I think a novelist's job really is is to find those points of empathy with characters I, I think everybody has vulnerabilities it's 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 interesting and important to, to find those out and to, to make your characters fully rounded even if they're in some sense, they're they're bad or difficult characters, you know. Well, when we last talked, you said that you want you you can only write about a certain period of time because you didn't want those who grew up and who live today uh, to you know you wanted to respect that generation. But if one does the math for Betty, she could very well be a lady now in her 80s. So she now could. we're seeing a little bit of a kind of advancement into the present <laughs> time. I have to ask, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. I guess writing, I mean, writing The Night Watch was a real leap of into the dark for me. I left the, 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 what you might think of as the safety of that distant Victorian period into, into a period that's much more within living memory. And I did feel I had a different relationship with it for that reason. But I guess writing The Night Watch gave me a sort of confidence with the, with the period that then allowed me to write the night watch you know the night watch is i mean the little stranger the little stranger is very grounded in 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 the you know the the, the social realities of the time but it's got this supernatural element to it too so it's me i suppose using the period as a springboard maybe for something else but i am still very curious about this concern of yours that there's a possible matchup between the characters you present in your book and these very real souls who still live on uh, these particular moments and why you feel that there are these these uh, terrifying parallels here i mean that's really i mean nobody else has ever said that to yeah. me as, as and no other novelist i think you know that's a really extraordinary position i think well i think I think all I was saying was that I felt that I didn't have with with the Victorian period. I felt it's 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 distant. It's beyond living memory, and it's that kind of makes it up for grabs. You know, I could play with it. I could play around with it. I could make it do interesting things. With the forties, because it's in living memory, I just felt I had a, I had to treat it in a slightly different way with with a, with a touch more respect, I suppose. Yeah. That's all, I, that's all I meant, really. Is it an authenticity issue? Like, those within the context of living memory will go ahead and come to you and say, hey, that didn't happen. <laughs> well, of course, that was, that was an issue for yeah. me, yeah. I mean, it was, it's a fantastic resource to have people who can remember the period. I could ask yeah. my mum and dad, who were children in the period, things about it. I could ask people. But yes, of course, I felt I had, to, I had an extra responsibility to get things right. Yeah. But at what point do you essentially just go ahead and do away with this concern for authenticity? Just let the characters who you have taken time to become poignant, to breathe on the page and the like, you, ha you kind of have to go with that at some point. You do, point, and you that's know? the point, I think, at which the book lifts off for you. Certainly for me, I'll start with a period of research 
and the book is that that in itself then produces it's almost like these characters kind of rise out of the mists of research you know and once they're solid enough then it's it's all about them and their story and I like to I like to keep the research going. I like to ground things in, in fact, if I can. But of course, no, you're writing about individual characters and it, you, you can, the, the imperatives then come from them rather than from, from history, I think. Yeah. On a similar note, do you draw from real life people for any of these characters? Do, is that possibly a concern fitting into this, uh, the parallels <laughs> that are possibly terrifying? <laughs> I've never really drawn from real life people there are touches in the night watch but you know in ways that are combined with other things that change them i think so i don't know if anybody would even recognize them apart from me but no certainly there's nothing there's, there's nothing in the little stranger that's that's based on a real person i see i do feel a bit squeamish about that yeah. it feels odd to me do you still have the poster above your computer that says, uh, you know, push forward with hope or whatever it is? Keep calm and carry Keep on. Keep calm and carry on. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> is this, is, was that applicable to this novel too? Or? <laughs> Actually, that was, that was much more pertinent for The Night Watch because that was quite a challenging writing process in all yeah. sorts of ways. It was hard going, although very satisfying in the end. But I have to say The Little Stranger was a much more level exp- writing experience for me. So... I, no, I don't have that poster up anymore. I moved house last year and it's never found its way back up onto the wall. It's but in the I, garage. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always, you know, it's always there in the back of my mind. Keep calm, carry on. And as a writer too, I think I find that, you know, you do have moments of, um, you do have sticky moments and moments where you feel like the book's collapsing and not working. But I do find that if you kind of press on with it and try out different things, you, you do sort of get there. So it is wise words, yeah. I think. So The Little Stranger was easier for you simply by having revisited the period before or because of the genre scenario? Yeah, both, I think. Both. I definitely didn't feel I had to do tons more research into the period. I knew the, I felt I knew the period pretty well. I knew the voices. I could hear the, you know, I could hear the voices very clearly before I started. So that freed me up a bit. Um, and the genre, yeah, it was, it, was, it was exciting for me to try and write within the genre. It's a genre I've always admired. But also, of course, it's a... You know, the Night Watch, technically, it's, uh, it moves backwards in time. It's a more impressionistic novel. It's third-person narrative, which I'd never done before. So yeah. there were lots of things I had to work out, whereas The Little Stranger is much more like my Victorian novels. It's a first-person narrative. Somebody's telling you a story with a trajectory of its own, you know. And I had a very clear vision of that story right at the start. Um, so that made it a much easier writing process. But inarguably, there are not a lot of ghost story novels written these days. I mean, there, there, they, there was a big rush of them in the seventies and the end, the eighties, and right around the eighties, it just kind of tapered off a little bit. It seems. Well, everybody's telling me at the moment that there's lots of supernatural stuff around. Yeah. Maybe it's more like vampires and demons. Maybe that's where yeah. it's gone. Um, but um, I think we do still have an enduring interest in ghosts, though. Yeah. You know, when you talk about it to people, everybody's got a kind of anecdote to tell you. Everybody's interested in the idea of ghosts. And, and I certainly am. I mean, I'm not a, it's not like I'd say I would believe in ghosts exactly, but I'm, I'm really um, drawn to them as an idea and drawn to why they, why they pull us so much and why they always have, you know? Now, in tackling a genre novel, I'm not even going to, even mention the word because I really despise the fact that you're you're labeled as a certain kind of writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to suggest that maybe this this book was by diminishing the libidinous content. Mm-hmm. This is a way for you to actually tag yourself as a genre writer, so you could be ghettoized <laughs> as a genre instead of this other word, which I won't even mention because I think it's a, a lot of bollocks myself. But what of this? Was this your plan? Or? I presume you mean the the L word. Yes. Yeah. 
No, I had no plan. In fact, it always annoys me. Now, people have, lots of different people have said to me, oh, did you write The Little Stranger like this because, you know, you wanted to try moving away from lesbians? I mean, the idea that I had a calculated plan like that um, really bothers me because, no, I didn't. Of course I didn't with this book, as in all my books. It was purely that I was doing some thinking about the period. A story came along that I liked. Um, I knew pretty early on that it wasn't going to be a, a lesbian story, but that, and I knew that that might bother some of my my lesbian readers, um, but that didn't didn't stop me from writing the book. You know, I just I wanted to kind of go for it and see what happened. So, um, and it, and it was no different really write, a writing experience from from any of my other books. I did kind of miss. You know, desire, romantic desire is a great narrative engine, and I did slightly miss that at first, even though a romance does arise in the course of the book that I hadn't really anticipated. But there, is, there, are, there are other narrative engines in this novel too, not least the sort of the sense of, you know, the haunted house and what's going to happen next, who's going to be kind of picked on next. But, but the romance in this is interesting because it is extremely cringeworthy as yeah. they make the wrong moves, and it's just I, I, that whole chapter my favorite part of the book is probably the whole chapter with the dance and in the car drive because it's this complete cringeworthy setup that immediately has you going oh my god no you know but i mean this is interesting because really nothing happens in comparison to your other books and and so i'm i'm wondering um if these restraints actually encouraged you to essentially just throw away all these labels altogether um yeah well there, i wasn't as it wasn't even as thought out as that you know it was just that there, there, there did arise a romance between the Dr. Faraday and Caroline, but it was never going to be a successful romance. You know, it couldn't be because they're, they're, they're just going into it for the wrong reasons. And he, for him, it's a way into the hall. For her, it's kind of a way out of the hall. So it was always going to be a disaster, basically. And that was very interesting to write. Well, Sarah, we're being kicked out of the room, but thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Exchanging glances, wandering in the night. What were the chances we'd be sharing love before the night was through? Something in your eyes was so inviting. Something in your smile was so exciting.